listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on April 2nd at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was... Deception. Music was performed by the Wool Pullers. We could kill it all. Oh, we could get it on together. We could get it on together. Stuart Siddons grew up in the suburbs of Jacksonville, Florida, where he always dreamed of experiencing the change of seasons, mountains, and never getting a real job. He first visited Alaska in 2008, and since then spent two summers in the southeast, one summer in Katmai National Park. I met him just before that summer, which was last summer on a ferry between Sitka and Juneau, uh, where he had a couple of days in Juneau before his summer gig in Katmai. On a drive out to run at Eagle Beach, the Taylor Swift song, We are never, ever, ever getting back together, was on the radio, and he butt-dialed his girlfriend, who had the pleasure of listening to her boyfriend and a random girl trying to sing along. It was clear he was a solid guy when he returned the confused response with the call stating that even if they had somehow broken up, they could definitely get back together. (laughs) Always on the move, he lived out of a backpack, jumping from boat to boat for years after college before settling on the coast of Maine, where he now resides. Please welcome to the stage, Stu Siddons. Two oh seven. This town is this town is way bigger than I thought it was. There's a lot of you. Uh, so um, for the last ten years, I've sort of been uh, trying to deprogram myself from a lot of the suburban skills uh, that I picked up in those southern ideals. So I did move uh, to Maine about ten years ago, and it's great. My family they still live in Florida. Um, which means that I end up spending a little more time there uh, than, I, than I really wish I did. Um, I've sort of attempted to get as much of those New England ideals and attitude uh, that I can. Uh, the, the drinking, uh, the long winters, the, the, the pride of those long winters, um, and, uh, and the honesty. Uh, I've really gotten a nice stronghold on that, which doesn't really set well with uh, everything that's going on and the way things are in the, in the South, especially in a conservative city like Jacksonville where I grew up. And, uh, but every year I venture down there and uh, I go for my, you know, quote, Christmas vacation, which is more filled with uh, obligation and awkwardness. Uh, there's generally a lot of eye rolling um, and, uh, and I don't necessarily have the, the best attitude about it. It, it requires a lot of tact. Um, it requires a lot of patience. Uh, two things that I am very short on. Um, 
but I still go every year, and uh, the, the, the visits seem to get shorter and shorter. Um, but uh, despite that, uh, my attitude doesn't really seem to change towards them. Uh, I think I've changed quite a bit since, uh, since I moved away 10 years ago, but that, uh, I, I'm generally proven wrong each year. Um, <clears throat> and so this last year, I was determined to, uh, to make it a different, a different visit, and uh, my dad uh, comes usually to pick me up at the airport, and, and this year his Prius shows up, uh, probably the only Prius that's uh, that's stickered with pro-life and uh, Mitt Romney stickers in, in America. Um, n- they still haven't figured figured out what's going on down there yet. Um, but this year, instead of just my dad uh, picking me up, it's uh, my mom and uh, my sister are there too, and they get out and they hug me. And my mom goes, hey, we're going to go visit your grandmother uh, before Christmas, just to get it out of the way. Uh, we won't have to see her again the whole time you're here. Which, uh, she, she actually puts up with a lot. Um, and uh, she's not, my grandmother isn't an easy lady to work with. And she lives in one of those really big uh, retirement homes um, that, uh, that, that sort of, uh, you think of when you think of Florida. And Florida's sort of unofficial motto of, of like Florida where people go to die. Um, and, and so we get there and I'm hanging out, uh, I'm having a private conversation with my sister in one corner of the living room and, uh, we're talking about what's happening here tonight. Um, I'm telling her what my, my future travels are and that I'm coming here and I'm going to tell a story. And, and I realize that, uh, it's not just her ears that are hearing this. It's my mom and my dad and my grandmother. And they just berate me with questions. It turns into quite the, uh, the interrogation. Uh, it, it ends with the question uh, that uh, my mom posed to me, which she goes, are, are you just here to tell that story uh, because you like to hear yourself speak? Um, <clears throat> And then my sister really quickly, uh, she goes, uh, she has a quick follow-up. She goes, is, does this involve some sort of girl or something? Um, I'm not going to comment on that part. Um, and, uh, and we end up uh, transitioning from an interview um, to, uh, to, to story time. And they begin uh, like a downpour of stories of deception about ways that I have uh, deceived them. <laughs> And there was, a, there was a lot of them, uh, some, some I was proud of. Uh, for example, I told my sister uh, the sophomore uh, f- uh, dance uh, that it was costume themed when, <laughs> when uh, actually it was semi-formal. Um, and then uh, another story was my, my mom shared that one time I, uh, I told her I was going to spend the night at my friend Ryan's house, but I actually spent the night at a girl's house. And I got caught. And, uh, but she was very quick to point out that as a mother, uh, your offspring cannot deceive. Uh, and she knew all along. Um, and, and this continues on for a little while. And uh, it, it turns into this flogging of like my family betrayal. And um, that's distracting. Um, and <laughs> and, uh, and what, it, what it started to make me realize was that, uh, that so much of, of the betrayal uh, uh, that had happened uh, from when I was a teenager 
uh, that you know I hadn't really moved on from it as much as I had thought. That uh, every year I go back to Florida and I visit this this teenager, this this uh, this person that I was. Um, uh, 10 years ago, and to my parents, that's who I still am because I moved away and I don't see them that often, and those are the memories that we have in common. And so when I move back, or when I go back for Christmas break every year, we just jump right back into the same routine. I have to ask to use the car. Um, I still roll my eyes. Uh, my dad still asks me to make my bed in the morning. Um, and what I realized was just that I hadn't really moved on, that the real deception was that as much as I thought I had left behind that person that I was so, uh, so uh, struggling to, to leave and to change, that that person was always going to be a part of me and it was always going to be down in Florida. As long as my parents are there, or as probably as long as I have a relationship with them, I'm still going to revert right back into that, as sad as it is. Thank you. Katie Giorgio is our next speaker. You may have spotted Katie around town since she moved here from Boston in 2012. Perhaps you've seen her out and about recently with Butters, the border collie puppy. She keeps busy playing trombone in various groups around town, and she's also the bunny queen of the Juno, Juno Bunny Bar Hop, which is just around the corner, by the way. <laughs> Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> Katie is in love with Juno and intends to call it home for the rest of her life. She spends her days working for the state and moonlights as a trip leader for wilderness volunteers. She's also currently enrolled in the uh, Masters of Public Administration program at UAS. Her story tonight is for your entertainment, but also will be ultimately a confession to her parents, John and Mary. She doesn't think they ever figured out the mystery of the dead snake in their car. Here's Katie. When I was younger, I had this boyfriend named Chef. And um, Chef was one of those boyfriends that your parents hope their daughter never brings home. He had tons of tattoos and piercings, and he smoked, and he drank, and he did drugs. And um, he didn't have a real job. <laughs> um, and uh, I met Chef in Boston um, shortly after he had moved there from New York. And he had taken the Feng Hua Chinatown bus up from New York when he moved, and he brought pretty much what he could carry with him on the bus. Um, so we get together, and uh, after a little while, we decide to make a trip down to Staten Island to his parents' house, where the rest of his stuff is. And at the time, I was driving a Toyota Camry, didn't have a ton of space in it. And um, so I call up dear old mom and dad. And uh, I said, hey, uh, Chef and I are going to go down to New York for the weekend and get his stuff. Do you mind if we borrow your car, which was a larger SUV with fold-down seats, you know, the whole nine yards? And I think mom and dad were a little hesitant to say yes, because Chef was involved. Um, but they trusted me completely, so they said yes. Um, so off we go, down to New York, and uh, in my parents' car. And we load up all of Chef's stuff, and it's like clothes and books and just general crap. And um, his three pet snakes. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a, a snake person at all. Uh, but I have to say, so he had two of these, like some sort of python, and they lived in this tank together. And um, you could look at them, and they would sort of slither around in this tank. And um, 
The live rat feedings were a little outside my comfort zone. Um, but, you know, they actually weren't the worst pet in the world. Uh, the worst pet in the world was the third snake, which was this exotic, uh, I think, African sand snake. And it lived in this separate tank with all this sand. It needed a heat lamp all the time. And um, it never came out from under the sand. It would just stay hidden. And so you couldn't even look at it. So I, I really didn't understand the point of having such a pet that you couldn't even see. Um, <laughs> So um, Chef was a little bit concerned about getting all three snakes back to Boston. Okay, because it was February and it was cold. So his uh, solution was to put the two pythons into a like a pillow sack, and he put the sand snake <laughs> into a into a smaller container uh, with sand and everything. And he put the uh, all three snakes under his feet in the car, and we put the you know, the foot heaters on full blast. And so we drive like four hours back to Boston. And uh, we get to his place and unload the car, you know, really quickly. We get the snakes inside first because it's cold out and uh, the rest of the stuff. And then I take off and go home for the night. And um, a few hours later, I'm warm in bed and uh, the phone rings and it's Chef. And he says, um, hey, uh, <laughs> The sand snake, <laughs> um, it's not in the container. Uh, I don't know where it is or when it got out. Um, you need to go out and check the car. So this, this is the same time that snakes on a plane came out. And yeah, and, and I'm out in the middle of the night on the street crawling around my parents' car with a flashlight looking for this snake, which may or may not be in there. And um, I didn't look very hard. <laughs> And I call Jeff back, and I, and I say, hey, man, I couldn't find the snake. I'm really sorry. Um, even if it's out there, it's a, it's a goner. It's like 10 degrees out. So, um, so I returned the car to my parents. And, and because I, I really didn't know where the snake was, I chose not to tell them. Um, because, you know, what do you say? There may or may not be a snake in your car, Mom and Dad. Um, and so, like, a week goes by, and I uh, go out to see my parents, and I take the train out. My mom comes to pick me up at the train station in the car that we had borrowed, and I've largely forgotten about the snake at this point. And uh, so I go to open the door, and this death smell comes out of the car. And um, it really, it takes me a minute, because I've forgotten, and then, um, ding, snake. Um, <laughs> but I've already sort of chosen my path, so I say, uh, <laughs> gee, Mom, <laughs> what's that smell? <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, poor mom and dad, they didn't know where it, it was coming from at that point. And, and she said, you know, we, we, we guess something died in the car. And we, you know, we get in the car and we, we go for a few minutes and the, the heat kicks on and then the smell starts coming out. And oh, wow, gee, that's awful. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, a little bit after that, they took the car to the mechanic and um, they ended up taking apart the entire dashboard. And lo and behold, there's a snake carcass in there. And um, so my parents call me um, because they know that Chef has snakes. They know that we had borrowed the car. And oh, by the way, my parents are lawyers. Um, <laughs> they're pretty smart. So they call me up. Hey, we found a snake in the car. Is it Chef's? 
And again, I've already chosen my path on this one. Um, oh, well, uh, <laughs> gee, um, well, yeah, Chef has snakes, but you know, they're, no, they're, he, they're fine in his apartment. I don't know about that snake in your car. Um, and again, you know, my parents are smart people, and I felt really bad about lying to them. But, and you would actually think that, you know, the jig is up for me. But um, my saving grace was they took a picture of the remnants of the snake, and they brought it to work at the law firm, and um, there was another person there who looked at the picture and apparently said and assured my parents, it was a very common, you know, variety, Massachusetts native snake, and there, you know, there's no way that it was anything exotic or whatever, so um, I guess I got off the hook on that one. Um, the only problem is, for like the last 10 years, I felt incredibly bad about lying to my parents about the whole thing. So like uh, like was said in the introduction, this uh, definitely was a story for your entertainment, but I really just want to take a moment right now to say to my parents who will listen to this recording, I think in a couple weeks, um, <laughs> mom and dad, this is Katie. <laughs> We're responsible for the dead snake in your car. I'm really sorry, forgive me. Our next speaker is Alex Kotlars. He's 23, from Seattle, lived in Juneau for five years. You will probably recognize him from playing on stage, singing about a girl named Billy and how the kid is not his son. Some of you got it. Alex loves to disc golf, party, and hang out with his cat named Allie. Please welcome Alex. How you guys doing? Right on. So, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, had a very weird childhood. My dad was a trickster. Um, yes, this is all about him. He's a wonderful, wonderful father. Um, he liked to tell me little lies when I was a kid, and uh, I, it took me a really long time to figure out what I was going to talk about, because deception is a big thing that I've been studying for the last year, because we are the wool pullers. Pulling wool over the eyes, you know, the whole thing. But um, my dad, as far as it came to deception in a funny way, my dad was pretty good at it. My dad liked to smoke pot. He smoked a lot of pot. And uh, he would smoke pot inside. And, you know, me being like six or seven, he, I would walk in and I'd be like, what's that smell? Like, dad, what is it? And he's like, well, son. Um, there's a clove sometimes in a cigarette when you get halfway down. And uh, when I hit the cigarette in that certain part, it burns that clove, and that's what makes that smell. <laughs> well, was I in a surprise when I turned 13 and I finally smoked pot? It's pretty, pretty awesome. I called my dad, and I'm like, I didn't even say anything. I'm like, Dad, are you serious? Like, really? A clove? And as soon, he just stopped, and he started laughing, like, he was just going off. And he's like, you believe that? And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know, I don't know what pot smells like. And so, yeah. So that was one. Um, another one was, when I was younger, we had a hurricane. It was probably like two years after this whole cloves incident. But uh, we had a hurricane. 
and it was Hurricane Elizabeth, and the power was out for like three weeks, right? It, unbelievable. Um, one night, he, him and his friend were hanging out, and out of nowhere, we hear this big scream out in the back, and it was like, like it just—it was sounded like a girl, but it was a guy. I found out in the long run, and so dad, my dad comes rushing into the living room, and he's like, "You guys need to go in your bedroom. Somebody's trying to break into the house right now, and he's gonna get you." And so I'm like, "Oh snap! Like holy crap!" Okay, so we run. Me and my brother, we run into our bedroom, and he's like, "Okay, don't say a single word. You know, just you got to be quiet, otherwise." bad things are going to happen. So we go into the room, and then I hear my dad go, ah, like, sounded like, it didn't even sound like a scream, but me being eight, like, I didn't know. All I knew was my dad looked serious, which was half of his deception. <laughs> but uh, I hear another scream, and then I hear, open the door now. And me not thinking, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, and that's all I said. I didn't even open the door. I was just like, okay. And he's like, open the door now. Open the door now. It's your father. And I opened the door, and I'm like, why? Why'd you do that? And I was like, I was about to cry. I was so scared. But uh, yeah, my dad liked to play a lot of tricks on me. Those were just a lot of. Few one. He wasn't. He was. He was. He was mean. He was a mean guy. Uh, he told me that if I drank too much Tang, my pubes would turn turn orange. I'm not even kidding. And me being at that age, not even really having any pubes, it's kind of. Uh, it was weird. So I waited. I was like, I could drink all the Tang I want right now, but when I turn, when I get pubes, you know. I guess that's, that's what will happen. There was one. And then uh, my sister, actually, she used to, wear a lot, used to wear leggings all the time. And uh, we were sitting at the kitchen table, and we heard this really big fart. And so my grandma decided to play a trick on her and was like, don't fart when you wear leggings because they'll blow up like big balloons and everyone will know what you did. <laughs> and so from that point on, she never wore leggings again. Uh, I used to tell my brother that he was a pony person, because you know how like ponies, they don't get any bigger. He believed that one for a while. It's pretty awesome. Oh, um, my dad also told me that if I wet the bed, the monster living underneath it would drown. Thank you very much. Karina Torgeson is our next speaker. Karina mostly grew up in Wasilla, so naturally, growing up, she was mostly looking for a way out. <laughs> she wrote this, not me. When she was 17 year old, 17, she escaped, only returning to Wasilla for the obligatory holiday visits. Her itchy feet led her to many parts of our country. She even tried out a couple of other countries, but she never stayed in one place for very long. Last year, Karina moved back to Alaska and found herself <clears throat> in Juneau, where she fell back in love with this incredible state and thinks, at least for a while, this is where she will call home. Here's Karina. Last fall, I called home 
a steel frame and two ever-rotating wheels. And I lived with three lovely young ladies, and we had the views of Central America as our backyard. We were on a bicycle tour, and we had our lives packed into only four panniers each. Um, and panniers are bike bags that attach to your bike. Um, you know, and we, we yearned for this life of, um, of no commitment, and we lusted for the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable and some adventure. Um, and we definitely got what we asked for. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I often found myself just grinning stupidly and dancing on my bike because I was just so happy and I would point at the volcanoes in the distance and the goats and the cows in the street and all of the dogs and we would wave at people and they would wave back and uh, children would race me and um, all of my senses were engaged as I just pumped my legs to turn those two orbs beneath me. Um, you know, and we would just drip sweat as we went up a challenging hill and we would howl as we went back down the other side. Um, and it was, it was incredible. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, we, we met so many amazing and generous people, and we danced, and we shared stories, and we climbed volcanoes, and we challenged ourselves to learn the language of those around us. Um, you know, we jumped in rivers, and we swam in bioluminescent seas, and we started each and every day not even knowing where we would sleep that night. But that was pretty key, finding a safe place to sleep. Uh, so every day we would start really early and we'd stop biking by about noon, um, mostly to escape the heat of the day, but also to kind of establish ourselves. And often, you know, we would stay and we would seek out secure places to sleep. And so we would stay in firehouses, um, schools, Red Crosses, uh, the occasional church, and oftentimes just people, loving people, taking us into their homes. And we were so blown away by the complete generosity of strangers, and it was incredible. Um, but we didn't want to be naive, and whereas we trusted our gut feelings on a lot of these strangers, we had our guards up to most. And we didn't really let out unnecessary information, um, and most of the time just with the cat calling and um, just kind of any indecency, we would just ignore those folks. And... Uh, about halfway through our tour, we found ourselves in the ecotourism destination of Costa Rica. And it really is just as beautiful as you've ever heard. And there's just wildlife thriving and so abundant. And there's monkeys and there's sloths and there's snakes and tarantulas and scorpions. Um, but this is also the first country we saw familiar cultures. You know, we saw a leisure and recreation culture, which is something we didn't see before. We saw people walking their dogs, runners, skateboarders. We saw a culture of fashion and of shopping. Um, we saw these aspects of life as we knew it back in the States, and it kind of created this sense of comfort a little bit. Um, we kind of felt like we were on a vacation from our vacation. And we started to let our guards down just a slightly. Um, and about this time, we had split up. So there was four of us total, and Sammy and Marielle headed west towards the Nicoya Peninsula, and Lana and I headed south towards Hako. Um, and on one particular day, after biking about 50 kilometers, um, Lana and I, well, she was ready to call it a day. So we rolled into the nearest town, and it's called Caldera. Um, and we, you know, we started our routine, and we were looking for a safe place to sleep, and there weren't many options, but there was an elementary school. So we approached elementary school, and we find the, the director, and she's awesome, and we are chatting with her, and things are going really well, and we're meeting her students. So we ask if we can pitch our tent behind her fence in her schoolyard. And she kindly lets us know that we can't do that. Um, but she suggests that we camp on the beach. 
Now, this is something we've been anticipating our whole trip, finally camping outside, somewhere in the wild, without a fence, away from towns and people. But this didn't really seem like the place because we were still in a town. We were pretty exposed. But we had talked to other cyclists who had said that they camped, or they camped all over beaches in Costa Rica. And you know that, with this suggestion from a school principal, we decided to maybe just give it a try. Um, so we went around town asking more folks, and we received the same positive encouragement. Absolutely, it's safe. People camp here all the time. So we headed to the beach, and uh, we started making dinner, and we were kind of just lazing around in the sun and playing in the waves with other young families and couples. And later in the evening, this older gentleman approached us who works at the beach, and you know he asked if we were planning on sleeping there. Um, and we got a little nervous because it was getting late, and we thought he might kick us out. And uh, but his smile only grew, and he got really excited, and he told us of all of the people that had camped right in this spot um, from all over the world, from Argentina, Colombia, from Canada. Um, and his, con his excitement was just so contagious that we felt pretty solid in our decision to finally camp. Um, and so, you know, as the night grew and the stars started to light up the sky, we set up our tent, and we situated our tired bodies, um, and we fell asleep. And I woke up screaming. I woke up to strange men entering our tent, reaching for Lana's hand. I woke up and I screamed because I needed somebody to hear. I woke up and I screamed because I didn't know what was at stake. My life, my friend's life, my body, her body. I screamed to scare these monsters away. And I screamed because it was my weapon. And then I saw his gun, and I stopped screaming. And you know, I can't really tell you how, but almost immediately that fear of the unknown went away because it became obvious they only wanted our material possessions. And he had a gun rested on Lana's temple, so they win. And at one point, the man in our tent, and there had to have been at least three or four more outside, um, but his head was turned, and so I tried to rummage my passport out of my bag. And he caught me, and he demanded it. Plata, dinero, dame, dame tu dinero, tarjetas también. I just remember him demanding our money. So I hand him my bag, and I'm pleading for my passport, and he tosses it outside, um, and he looks at his friend, and he's saying something, and then he turns back to us, and right at this point, there's almost a pause in the commotion, and the silence grows. And he takes his gun from Lana's temple, and he puts it on her forehead. Boom. He whispers, and he snickers. And then my passport flies back in the tent on my face. <laughs> like, really generous thieves, right? They gave me my passport back. But, you know, and, and at this point, the man in our, in our tent, he, he withdraws his gun, and he cradles it in his hands, and he places it on his cheek, indicating that we go back to sleep. Dormi. Si no duermas, disparo. Si te vas, disparo. Sleep. If you don't sleep, I shoot. If you leave, I shoot. And then they were gone, um, and there we were, with our lives completely unharmed, but there we were with this recognition that our decisions led us to this point. And I can't even begin to tell you how grateful and lucky we felt to, be, to come out of the situation the way that we did. But 
you know, we, we had a gut feeling and we didn't listen to it. And we did things differently than our norm. We had kind of deceived ourselves. But after leaving the tent and after things calmed down, I noticed that my tr bike was still locked to a tree. And I had one pannier. They didn't get away with everything. And that one had my spare parts and my repair kit. And so I reunited with Sammy and Marielle. And I was much lighter than before. But I had my guard back up and fully erect. And I found myself back on the road. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on April 2nd, 2014 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was deception. Curious? Visit www.mudrooms.org. We can't direct you. We can Mike Bosole grew up overseas, moving around a lot. He is the father of two. His soon-to-be doctor son lives and works in Victoria, B.C. Mike's daughter, who has followed her father's footsteps and works in the radio industry, is in the process of moving to Los Angeles. Mike moved to Juneau 15 years ago with the plan of staying for one year, and he just never left. Up until a year and a half ago, he worked for KINY Radio and went by the name of Mike Lane. Now he owns and operates a small video and audio production company, Audio Borealis Production. Mike recently married seven months ago woo, and is planning ow, on going to Panama in October for his honeymoon. Done. Mike. Oh, that was a long intro, huh? I didn't realize I wrote that much in that email when she asked me to say a little something about myself. So, yeah, uh, I've lived in Juneau for 15 years, which is longer than I've lived anywhere, ever, by a long shot. Uh, <laughs> I've always uh, had nomadic tendencies and uh, moved around a lot my entire life. See, when I was a kid, I was told that my dad worked for Exxon. I don't know what he did for Exxon, just that he worked for them. And we lived all over the world. We lived in uh, England, Greece, Saudi Arabia. Most notably was Libya in North Africa in a small village called Marseille Brega. Now Brega was, uh, well to say it was surrounded by nothing <laughs> would be uh, an understatement. The Sahara everywhere and uh, Mediterranean to the north. I'm shaking like a leaf so I'm going to lean on something. Yeah, I haven't been in front of this many people in a long time, so I've got to kind of steady myself. At any rate, like I said, I, I was told that my dad worked for Exxon, and I don't know what he did. And we did live everywhere, and while we were in Brega, he was, well, I was told, he was working at a refinery there. And uh, I didn't really understand what he did at the refinery. Now, I wasn't told the entire story, I was told part of the story, that's how deception works, is... You get a small portion of the story, and then you get the, the rest of it later, right? Well, <laughs> well, we lived there until 1981. That's when my mother and I were evacuated. We were uh, in a military evacuation and uh, sent to England. My dad had to stay in Libya and work at the refinery, so I was told. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, <laughs> December 1st, 1981, the, uh, the phone at the hotel room rang, and my mother answered, and uh, it was a friend of the family. He ordered my mother to gather me and get on the next flight to Jamaica. So we did. Well, we were in, in uh, Miami waiting for a connection to go to Ocho's Rios, and I noticed a, a very thin man sleeping in the chair across from us at the airport. He was dirty, full beard, arms crossed. And it was my dad. I hadn't seen him in four and a half months. And uh, I didn't believe it was him at first. I had to really inspect him to make sure it was him, because I hadn't seen a man this thin before. He looked like he hadn't showered or eaten in weeks. I pointed him out to my mom. She didn't believe me. She said, no, that's not your dad. <laughs> I said, no, it's, it's him. Well, she got a closer look. Definitely it was him. So after the tears and the hugs, we all boarded a flight to Jamaica. Like I said, we stayed in Ocho's Rios until Christmas Day that year. That's when the phone rang again, and my dad had orders to be back in the Middle East. I thought this was odd for an oil man. I never asked anything about it, though, really. Well, my dad retired years later and didn't speak of his work. And uh, this was our life, really, while he was working. Was, we just moved everywhere. I didn't know where we were going to be next or when we were going or what he did for a living, really. So like I said, he retired, and he didn't speak of it until years later, about three years ago, in fact. He got a call from Washington, D.C. He was asked to be a docent at the B Reactor in Hanford. Now, the B Reactor, <laughs> if you don't know about it, it's the largest or the first large-scale nuclear reactor built to produce plutonium-239 for the Manhattan Project. And I asked him, I said, well, why did they choose you to be a docent there? He said, well, I worked there once. That's all he said. <laughs> he didn't say anything else about it until about six months ago. He was on his deathbed. And I sat with him, and I asked him, tell me that story again. He said, well, it turns out my dad was one of the last three living people who worked at B Reactor. He told me that he became a, a nuclear engineer there and joined the Navy. And I said, well, how'd you go from that to Exxon? <laughs> he says, well, we didn't really. We, we moved all over the world under the cover of Exxon and Standard Oil. And the facilities that he worked in, he told me, were just, they were disguised inside of oil refineries so that those people didn't really understand what was going on there. He said it was more work to keep people oblivious to the work they were doing than it was to actually do the work. So <laughs> we went all over the world to countries that Europe and the U.S. had concerns about nuclear activity and capabilities. And that was the entire story there. Well, this whole story that my dad told me just days before he died explained a lot about my nomadic tendencies. I learned a lot about him in a very short period of time more about him and myself in just a few days than I had learned in 46 years. I, I learned that my childhood, while I was growing up, was really a ruse. It was deception at its best. I wasn't given the whole story. <laughs> you know, I didn't know he worked in the nuclear field. I thought he worked for Exxon. Uh, I thought he worked in Brega, in, in Libya, in North Africa, but he didn't. See, my dad would get up Monday mornings and go to work, come home on uh, Fridays. I saw him on weekends only. See, he worked at a facility that was south of Brega, about a seven-hour flight in a place called Zelton, out in the middle of the Sahara. And they 
would only fly in and out once a week. So that's the way I saw him. And now in our house in Brega, I forgot to mention this, we had a very peculiar room. It, it had three hot water heaters, a workbench and a bunch of test tubes. It looked like a, a science lab. I only saw the inside of it one time. And then it was locked and I wasn't allowed back in. Told never to mention what I saw inside. Well, I, when I was talking to my dad at his deathbed, I did learn something about him. He's a, he's a good old boy from Tennessee. <laughs> I, I think you can figure it out. The three hot water heaters, they were a still. Yeah. Everywhere we lived, all around the world, my dad had three hot water heaters that were not making hot water. And I was oblivious to that. He was pretty good at deception, that old man. Thank you. Catherine Hatch is our next speaker. Catherine is rounding out her second year living in Juneau, right next door to me, actually. She's really from Texas, but spent years trying to escape by moving away, first to Germany, then Massachusetts, France, Switzerland, back to Germany, and now here. She spends her days toiling for the wonderful Juno Arts and Humanities Council, and every so often you'll catch her running up and down the stairs to the Rookery Kitchen as well. She is the proud owner of a Whippet puppy named Tanny, and my favorite neighbor. She is unusually tan because she just got back from her first ever trip to Hawaii, which she loved. Um, relevant to her story is the fact that Catherine's father is a professional deceptionist. Please welcome Catherine to the stage. I'm a little disappointed because I wrote that at the beginning of our trip to Hawaii and I thought we'd do a lot more tanning, but my boyfriend got really burnt the first day and we didn't go out that much after that. So just <laughs> deceive yourselves if you will, pretend we can lower the lights or something. Anyway, there's been a lot of stories already about dads deceiving their children, but <laughs> I bet you that I will be the only one whose father has printed hundreds of business cards that say on them, Richard Hatch, deceptionist. <laughs> he is a professional deceptionist, and I'll get to that point a little bit later, but the first thing I want you to know to really understand what happened in this story, uh, the mistakes that were made by me, is that I grew up in a place very far from Juneau in uh, the suburbs of Houston, Texas, as Alita mentioned. And this is a very, very different place than Juneau is, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, primarily, though, it's, I think, the relationship that we have with nature in, in Houston is different than here. Um, because you folks here like nature. <laughs> and we sure as heck don't. Um, we do not go outside in Texas and Houston uh, unless we can avoid it. And uh, if, we, if we can avoid it, we will not go outside. And we stay indoors where we have our air conditioning. And we, we run outside from the front door of the air-conditioned home to the door of the air-conditioned car. That's kind of the sport that we do. So people here are always trying to get me to do the Klondike, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and here in Juneau, where people, you know, they leave their doors unlocked, which is already crazy enough, but you leave your windows open, too, for fresh air. <laughs> this was strictly forbidden in the home I grew up in, because you would let that cold air out, and you would also let insects in, and snakes and spiders and all sorts of crappy things. So they make this easy in public buildings in the schools that I went to. There actually were no windows 
Uh, and this was pretty typical. And when power outages happen with hurricanes, as they do in the South, uh, it's completely pitch black. Um, and, but that's okay, because at least the cold air stays a little bit nicer in there for a little bit longer. And um, just Texas, at least the part I grew up in, is a place where the outside stays out and the inside stays in, and it's a lot safer inside. And in my uh, climatized house, which we kept at a cool 83 degrees Fahrenheit, which is cool when you're thinking it's 115 outside, um, I lived with my mother, who's a musician, and my brother and my father, who is actually a magician. But he doesn't like that word very much, which is why he calls himself a deceptionist, which I think is a word he made up. If you Google it, you'll see photos of him. <laughs> so, but he, he likes that word better than magic because he's a magician who doesn't really believe in magic. He doesn't do, he's not a wizard. That's totally different. He's a deceptionist and he deceives his audience as he performs illusions and um, he just tricks your mind for a minute or two to think that you've seen something that is physically impossible. And um, when you grow up with a magician, which I highly recommend, if you can get a magic dad, definitely do it. <laughs> a++ would do again. It's a lot of fun living in a magic house. Um, and my mother is a musician, as I mentioned. They have a show together. And my brother and I were in it when we were younger. Uh, I was cut very early on. I think my cuteness wore out around age four. <laughs> my brother is 24. He's still in the act. So I don't know what that's all about. But um, we would tour around the country and do our little show. And he's, he still does it. That's his full-time job. And uh, he, he is not a very organized person. I don't know any magicians who are. I've met several. And so the things that he does with his work, if, you're a if you become a professional magician, you love your job. And if you love your job, you bring your job home. And his job was all over our home his air-conditioned home. It was in piles everywhere. And he's not much of a props guy. He only recently acquired a floating woman device. <laughs> Mostly he did close-up magic, so it was little things around the house. And he would al was always working on new things. He's constantly developing his act. And when I was a kid, just I remember he one time got really obsessed, for example, with Rubik's Cubes. And he had learned how to solve them and he wanted to somehow, he wanted to be juggling the cubes while solving them and juggle an apple and eat the cubes and be juggling and solving. As a result of this, there were Rubik's cubes all over the house. It was on floors and everything. And I remember picking one up one time to play with it and a whole bunch of salt spilled out because that one was a Rubik's cube salt shaker. So you just can never be sure. <laughs> There's a lot of deceptive things in the household. Um, in our change jar, you always had to avoid that one nickel that was hollowed out that, with a little secret compartment in it for squirting water or something. Um, my dad had thousands of books on magic. He opened a, sh a bookstore at one point about magic. Um, but a couple of those books, if you took it off the shelf and opened it up, they would burst into flames. Because that's just... <laughs> so got, <laughs> we had a trick violin as well that would, would blow bubbles when you played it instead of music. So things are not always as you seem. And one time at home, you, you get used to that, though. You get used to not always knowing what you're doing. And I was playing, I was about five years old, and there was, on a pile of books in this mess of our house, um, was this brand new rubber snake. Now, we, have, we had doves growing up, magic doves, that did the normal magic things that doves do. We had a magic fish. Um, but the snake must have been new, and I didn't even notice it at first. I kept playing, but uh, I came back to it because it looked 
so real. I mean, you could see all the little scale. This was top of the line rubber snake uh, that money could buy. And being five and um, being in our secure climatized house, I, I just wanted to play with it. And it looked so real, I wanted to see if it indeed felt just as real as it looked. And without hesitation, I went to go pet it. And that is when it became very real. <laughs> very quickly, it slithered off the boxes and its little tongue did the thing. And um, this was upstairs near my bedroom. So I jumped back, but behind me is the staircase. So in front of me, sudden death, eat, eat my snake. Behind me, sudden death, fall down, break your neck. Or the third option, which is what I did, I screamed and I screamed, and my dad came out of his office, which was also upstairs, and he's annoyed because he's on a phone, it's magic business. Um, he snapped into action, though. he dropped the phone, grabbed the snake, ran downstairs, out the front door. In the commotion, somebody's handed him a cleaver, and I go downstairs, and whap, clears the head right off. And this is not the first time he's killed a snake. I mean, every other time he mowed the lawn, just got to flip it over. <laughs> Move the snake, keep going. But it was the first time he'd done it with a cleaver, and when you do this, it's just like in the movies, the head keeps going, I swear. It's so scary. But it died, and there was blood everywhere, and it was fine. And believe it or not, I did not develop one of those Indiana Jones-like phobias of snakes. I mean, I survived, so whatever, I can handle them. Um, but I did learn that if you're ever visiting a magician's house, you should maybe just keep your hands in your pockets. Thank you very much. Amy Dressel. Amy is a born storyteller, especially since she was named after two characters in a book. Now you are wondering who. She's always been obsessed with books and stories and making people smile from a young age. Her mom got tired of reading Amelia Bedelia over and over and over. Amy was born in the Mile High City, went to school and residency in the Midwest, and ventured to Juneau 15 years ago in an effort to live out her declaration in third grade that she wanted to be a pediatrician and live in Alaska. Amy tends to be a big kid at heart, always surrounded by her less than five feet fans. She was a preschool teacher and worked in an educational toy store before succumbing to the thrill of stethoscopes and syringes. Amy has family all across the states, from Hawaii to Virginia, that she adores and misses, but also has learned to love her Juno family that she's made complete with mom, dogs, hood rats, silly office mates, neighbors, wearable art, and derby friends. What more could a girl ask for? Be patient with Amy. This is her first time doing a show like this. She is doing this to complete her Miko list of 100 things to accomplish this year. Please welcome to the stage, Amy Dressel. All right, so deception. You've heard a lot of stories about deception tonight. Some pretty funny, right? Some very serious. Some all including being misled, being lied to, kind of misdirected. Um, on a whole, when you think of deception, you think of something bad. But I'm here to tell you that deception can be good, and I'll tell you why. Um, I hear deception on a regular basis on, at my work, and the deception usually goes like this. How can something this big make a poop that big, right? <laughs> so I hear it. You know, it's, under, it's understandable. I mean, small body, clog the toilet, that's impossible. But it does happen. <laughs> um, so to tell you how deception will be good, I'll go back to my, at uh, the beginning. I grew up 
in Colorado, in northern Colorado, on a small farm. We raised uh, our own food, basically, and canned it. Spent a lot of Saturdays and Sundays, instead of playing, um, harvesting and canning and doing all really exciting things like that. Um, read a lot of books. My sister always called it the white nerdy existence. Um, not a lot of cultural diversity where we lived. So what does a nerdy white farm girl do when she gets the chance to go to college and spread her wings and see the world? Yeah, that's right. She goes to the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, some Midwest fans. All right. Yeah, Iowa to be more specific. Even better, right? <laughs> But it actually worked out well. I met some of the most amazing people. The first person I met was my friend Carol, who is a whole story in herself. Uh, Carol, being a biracial child, um, had all kinds of things, and she was such a bright flame. She drew other people to her, kind of like moths that would hover around her. And these people were amazing, eclectic, unique people. And one of the people I met through her was this young, tiny little Filipino man named Irwin. And Erwin was always impeccably dressed all the time, and he was sassy, and he had a great sense of humor, and always knew what to say. And throughout our first year of college, I started noticing that Erwin's dress became a little bit more flamboyant, and sometimes a little bit more effeminate. And then it wasn't good enough for his clothes. He'd start coming to our rooms and start going through our closets. <laughs> and I heard a lot of, why did you buy that? <laughs> and you're not going to wear that with this, are you? And sometimes I even heard, where has this been hiding all this time? And after a while, it wasn't just enough to go through our closets. You'd be cross campus, and all of a sudden, you'd see your clothing appear <laughs> in the library, in the classroom, in a social function. And I can very clearly remember one day standing in the lunchroom and looking up and watching Erwin sashay in in my brand new skirt. Yes, your brand new skirt. I hadn't had a chance to wear it yet. So I was a little bit peeved and kind of started kind of getting angry at him and letting him know how I felt. And at that time, he said, it's okay. I wore your pantyhose too. Yes, and in effort, that's exactly what I did. So in an effort to complete it, to make me laugh even more, he was lifting up the skirt to show me his junk shoved in tidy whities in the pantyhose. <laughs> so it had its intended effect. It made me laugh. But at the same time, I think it scarred the poor maintenance man who was standing right outside the window. Yeah, not that poor man. I think he yeah, never figured that out. So um, soon after that, we began to refer to him as Erwina all the time. And Erwina was not satisfied with just our clothes anymore. So he made us go shopping a lot. And initially it was, bring this, try this on. And then it would be coming into the dressing room with you to make sure you were putting it on correctly and see what it looked like. And then pretty soon he was putting on himself. <laughs> and the thing was, I didn't mind so much him being in there or him putting on the clothes. It was the fact that he looked so much better in anything <laughs> than I did. And I began to get annoyed with him and tell him to get away and go find his own dressing room. <laughs> and anytime we went out, anytime we were anywhere, it's, it was uh, frustrating to begin with because we had always these guys would swarm around us, always wanting to talk to him. And I'd be like, what am I? Sliced meat? I mean, come on, these are real boobs. That's not, you know. 
But after a while, I just became comfortable with the fact that hanging around a beautiful woman drew more men than I would ever probably achieve a dry, driving to us. So I kind of, kind of liked that. And I knew that Erwin had finally made it when we were in graduation, and he was in this beautiful silver lame dress, and I was in a flower print gunny sack. <laughs> yes, uh, farm girl at heart. And uh, his dad turned to me and said, it's so interesting. I come to America with one daughter, one son, and now I have a two-data. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's great. His dad gets it, you know. And I realized that you're not your sum of your genetics or your experience. You are who you are deep inside. And some of us are lucky enough to find that and be able to use that and express that and become who we are supposed to be. And Erwin is definitely someone who not only is who he's supposed to be, he celebrates it and he uses it. And he uses it by deceiving people. So right now, Erwin is a professional drag queen in Chicago and he's making a dang good living at deceiving others to think that he's something that he's not. But in his heart, he is. So it's kind of hard to say, is that really deception or is it honesty? Thank you. Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on April 2nd, 2014. The theme for the evening was Deception. <laughs> Visit mudrooms.org to tell your story. Audio production by Pat Roach. We could get it on together. We could get it on together.